Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. This is episode 17. If you're enjoying the podcast, check out the link in the description. We would appreciate any support that we can get through our Patreon account. And know that by doing so, you're helping Kellen and I justify to our wives why we spend so much time on this. Yeah, we're really grateful for those that are already helping to cover the cost of the hosting and the equipment. Every little bit is appreciated. Sweet. So let's hop into it. In episode eight, we covered the broad trend of climate change and why it's inevitable. And we talked about the different temperature increases and what they mean. We touched briefly on what the potential consequences of climate change are. In this episode, we want to dive a bit deeper into what life might actually be like in the not-so-distant future for us as climate change intensifies. Honestly, this conversation is a reality that the vast majority of the population either willfully ignores or simply doesn't know enough about because it's not really talked about by the media. In the news, we hear about climate change as this sort of far off into the future thing. A lot of people think about it like, you know, the polar bears and the ice caps are melting, but real life implications and consequences aren't really examined. And I think very few people actually understand what the potential outcomes of all of this is. They don't realize that 10, 20, 50, 60 years from now, their lives could be completely turned upside down. So as a reminder, before we dive in, if you're unfamiliar with climate change and you haven't done so yet, listen to the episode eight of this podcast uh, to get a bit of an intro into it first and then come back and listen to this episode. So to get started, I think let's mention just a couple of caveats. So 
And the first one is that there is a wide range of possible future scenarios based on different models, which take into account different actions by society. You know, those models can range from 1.2 degrees Celsius above the baseline all the way up to, you know, 4 degrees Celsius just by 2050. And the difference in consequences based on those varieties is huge. And like we spoke about in episode 8, we don't believe that the best or even middle case scenarios are all likely. As a matter of fact, I just saw a study that says we'll likely hit 1.5 degrees by 2027. So this is a new study that just came out. The Paris Climate Accord goal was to keep us to 1.5 degrees through the entire century. And we'll already have passed that in just a decade from when that accord was set in 2016. Another way to look at that is that if Biden wins a second term, he'll still be president when we pass the 1.5 degree mark. We've consistently tracked at or beyond those worst case scenarios, and that's because most models don't take into account the many feedback loops, some of which we discussed in episode 10. If I can jump in, I'll just say I'm still new to all of this. And so I listen from the perspective of being a little more informed than I was before. But as I listen to what you're saying, I still have that initial reaction of like 1.5 degrees. That sounds so small. That sounds so insignificant. But then I remember back to what that really means. And just going 1.5 degrees above the baseline and doing so as quickly as you're talking about. And also being aware of all the feedback loops that we've talked about before. It feels extremely urgent and honestly quite terrifying. If only everyone felt that same urgency, we'd be in a better place. Yeah, and you know, you often hear talk about like specific years with climate change, right? People are like in 2050 or especially when they say in 2100, this is how life is going to be. And that makes it so distant. And it's almost comforting to people because they're like, oh yeah, it's outside my lifetime, you know, that sort of thing. But that that's the second caveat here. It's not like those dates are this solid line that once crossed, there's going to be this flood of consequences. We won't all be like holding hands and bracing for impact at midnight on December 31st, 2049. There will be an increasingly exaggerated stream of consequences happening from now until forever. There isn't going to be one moment in which we're like, okay, this is it. You know, this is where things go crazy and climate change gets us. We'll be like the frog in that boiling pot of water, and each year, things will get worse and worse on average as that heat is slowly turned up. And it will come so slowly in a human perspective that there's not going to be any combined shock value, and therefore there likely won't be any real significant action taken. I do think that more and more people will kind of wake up to what's going on, but that's going to be slow and it's going to be painful, and it's not going to be in a way that really leads to any real changes. So the reason that I bring that up is that when in this episode, you know, when we talk about future dates, you got to understand that things are getting worse before and will continue to get worse after. And because there's so much uncertainty around those dates, for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to try and simply limit the use of dates and just try and paint a picture of what the overall future is going to be like. But just know that everything I'm talking about is, according to the studies, likely to happen at some point between now and the year 2100 in most people's lifetimes. You mentioned that analogy or metaphor or whatever it is of the frog in the pot of water and you slowly turn the heat up until it's cooked, right? I feel like culturally, we are so desensitized to so much that is going on. You know, one example that I can think of is several years ago when there were some mass shootings and they were so heartbreaking and they still are, but they started to happen more frequently. And it got to the point, even within just like a few months, 
that if the death toll wasn't quite high, it was only in the news cycle for a matter of hours, right? Nobody really paid attention to it. Yeah, it was like only three people died in this mass shooting. Like, what was he using, a knife? (laughs) Well, I'm just, I'm an idiot. No, I'm just saying that, like, we almost, like, critique them for how bad they are at killing people if they can only manage to kill a few in a mass shooting. Yeah, and I think when it comes to, like, wildfires, you know, it gets to a point where you hear however many acres are burning in Australia or in California or Siberia or wherever, and it just becomes meaningless so quickly. It's like if we're not breaking the record, it doesn't mean anything. Like, oh, 2019 wasn't the hottest year on record? It was, by the way. But if it wasn't, then, you know, we would be like, uh, whatever, then everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. I, I just feel like the fact that this is going to gradually increase makes it almost more dangerous, right? If there was just a sudden shock to the system, this sudden wake-up call, that'd be one thing. But thinking that this year will probably be a little worse than last year, and then the next year will be a little bit worse, it just kind of lulls people into this sense of normalcy and this complacency. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that is not going to change. I think people are going to continue to find reasons to not pay attention to it until it's literally right on top of them, causing them inconvenience directly. So the third caveat here is that we simply don't know everything. And when I say we, I mean, as a species, humanity does not know everything there is to know about climate change. And I especially mean we as in Kellen and I. You know, I am not a scientist. I I only know what I find through reading studies and doing research, but I certainly don't know the intricacies in the science behind how this all works. The consequences we're about to talk about come from multiple studies, multiple books and lectures on the topic and represent the best educated guesses at what our future is going to look like. And in reality, it could be much worse. It could also be better. The consequences we each face are going to differ in the same way that they will with catabolic collapse. You know, it depends on where we live, our health, our socioeconomic status. So this is largely up for interpretation. I don't want people to think that with this episode, we're stating like, when you're 40, this is how life is going to be. But the general idea of overall conditions, I think, are accurate. So the first major consequence to talk about is heat. Our bodies are heat engines, meaning that in order to survive, we have to continually be able to cool ourselves off. Our muscles produce energy when we move or do work, and so in so doing, we also create heat. At certain external heats, meaning the temperature outside, our bodies are not able to shed heat any longer. Instead, we retain heat. And that's where you start to hear about things like heat stroke and heat exhaustion, which are already plaguing people pretty heavily in certain parts of the world. And so as the average temperature increases with climate change, it's going to become harder and harder for people to be able to do any sort of labor outside, especially in parts of the world where there's limited or no air conditioning. So as an extreme example of that, um, David Wallace Wells in his book, Uninhabitable Earth, and this is the same book that I referenced in episode eight, he points out that at five or six degrees of warming, everywhere east of the Rockies in the U.S. is going to be hotter than any other inhabited place on the Earth today. That's around 75% of the entire population of the U.S. that lives in that territory. And worst case scenarios currently place us at around four degrees Celsius by 2050. So already well on our way to that extreme scenario. Now, again, with extreme scenarios, like you run this risk of, of saying like, oh, well, that's, you just said five or six degrees and we're only going to be at four degrees by 2050 in the worst case scenario. Okay, so maybe only 60% of the population is in the hottest, you know, in a place hotter than the hottest place on earth right now. So the point is it's going to be hot and it's going to put a lot of people in a lot of risk 
of these sort of extreme heats. There's something called wet bulb temperature, which is discussed a lot, which is a measurement used that combines direct heat with humidity. Most regions of the world currently reach a wet bulb temperature of around 26 or 27 degrees Celsius, which is around 80 degrees Fahrenheit. But the temperature beyond which humans begin dying from heat is 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature, which is 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's at that temperature that our bodies stop shedding heat and actually starts taking it in. So to clarify, those temperatures aren't the regular temperature you see on your thermometer, but a combination of both heat and the humidity. So the gap between the current average and the death on average is just 8 degrees. Because the climate will change more extreme in some areas than others, that 8 degrees is going to be breached this century in certain areas and force people to either leave those areas or die. And again, with this 35 degree number, it doesn't mean that everything's peachy up until then, but rather heat exhaustion, heat stress, all of that will start occurring long before that, in which conditions doing any sort of outdoor labor is going to be unhealthy and even possibly deadly. Get this fact. Since 1980, the earth has experienced a 50 times increase in dangerous heat waves. So that's just the last 40 years. We've had a 50 times increase in those heat waves. And every year we hear that, hey, this year was the hottest on record. And that's just going to keep continuing to a point that large swaths of the globe are going to become uninhabitable. So this is where the skeptical side of me comes out just a little bit. You know, I've got some family members who live in Arizona. And I believe this last summer, there were more days in the Phoenix area of like 120 degree Fahrenheit temperatures or higher than ever before, which to me is mind blowing. But everyone was fine, right? Because they go from an air conditioned house to an air conditioned car. And even in places that get extremely hot around the equator, where perhaps they don't have air conditioning, people still manage to do okay, right? You sit in a shaded concrete building and you've got a fan blowing on you. And although it all sounds uncomfortable, I fail to see where this is necessarily dire or fatal. Yeah. So the key is uh, the humidity factor. So Arizona is dry as I'll get out, right? It's 120 degrees, but it's 120 dry degrees. I spent some time in um, both Georgia and Virginia during the summers and 80 degrees felt like I was going to die right? It was way worse to be in 80 degrees in that humidity than to be in 100 plus degrees in dry heat. The wet bulb temperature takes into effect the amount of moisture in the air. And that amount of moisture mixed with the heat is what causes heat exhaustion and heat stroke. It's not just purely temperature. Your body can't sweat out when the air around it contains a certain amount of moisture. And on that note, as climate change progresses, which, you know, we talked about this in episode 10 with the feedback loops, that the more the Arctic ice melts and the more that ice in Greenland and, and all this different ice is melting, it's causing there to be much more moisture in the air. We talked about how more moisture in the air equals more rainfall and more clouds, but one of the biggest things that it causes is an increase in humidity. So as the average temperature increases and the average humidity increases, those two things combine to become deadly. That being said, and we'll talk about this in a minute, heat waves do kill. They do kill a lot of people, right? And certain areas like Arizona, you know, in a first world country where most everyone, if not everyone, has access to these really in their homes, they've got good air conditioning and things like that. There are other parts of the world that are either poor and so they're unequipped with air conditioning or places that don't normally experience this much heat, right? That will get a heat wave and it does kill. You know, the European heat wave of 2003 killed uh, 2,500 people a day just from being exposed to a heat that they weren't used to. 
So Wallace Wells also mentions that even if we meet the Paris Climate Accord goals, heat waves are going to continue to hammer cities in Europe and Asia annually. Even just two degrees Celsius will cause hundreds of millions, if not billions of people to be unable to spend time outside in summer months. At four degrees, that heat wave that I just mentioned in Europe, which killed over 2,000 people a day, would become a normal summer in Europe, is what they're predicting. And in 2003, when it happened, it was considered one of the worst weather events in continental history. So, you know, we're going from talking about, like, this cataclysmic event that was news all over the world to it just becoming summer. (laughs) You know, you hear talk about, like, oh, we used to call those natural disasters. Now it's just weather. Hurricanes used to be this insane thing when they would happen and make landfall. And now it's like, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, if it doesn't cause more deaths or more flooding, or if it's not an insane category five, we're kind of like, oh, whatever, it's just another little hurricane. But that's the direction that we're headed with heat waves. And so as a side note with heat, as things get hotter, the need for air conditioning is going to increase exponentially, especially because most of the hard hit places are places that really don't currently have much access to it. For example, poorer countries, you know, places in India, Africa, Central or South America. But the crazy thing is that currently 10% of all electricity use globally is for air conditioning. And you think about all the reasons we use electricity, everything you plug in, you don't really often think about the AC unit. But that's 10% of all electricity. By 2050, demand is supposed to triple or quadruple for air conditioning units. So as cheap oil and coal is on its way out, and with current energy consumption only being around 15% renewable... How on earth are we going to be able to power such a dramatic increase in demand for air conditioning? Right now, we're already on this race for increasing renewables versus fossil fuels, but I just don't see how we're possibly going to keep pace with that demand and growth. In my opinion, I see a future in which a shortage in electricity will by necessity be rationed for air conditioning in the summer months in certain areas of the world. And that also that demand can put a real strain on existing grid infrastructure. A lot of people talk about how air conditioning is probably going to lead to a lot of blackouts a lot of failure of grids and things like that because it it requires such a demand and one that most grids are not currently set up to be able to accept. So when the solution is either add more air conditioning units, pump them all up to max, or flee the area and leave, you know, countryside uninhabitable, people are going to try and stay the best that they can. Yeah, that last comment you made, I hadn't thought about the lack of infrastructure that we have to handle, right? If if temperatures get so high that it's fatal to be outside and people have to be using their air conditioning. Their air conditioning units are going to be running at full blast much higher than ever before. And everyone's going to be running them at full blast all at once. I can see where that would put a huge strain on the electrical grid. And you think about a blackout during a time like that, like what would you do? How in the world do you keep yourself cool when you're facing those kind of temperatures and the one thing that you rely on requires electricity? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't. They won't be able to keep cool, and it it is going to cause a lot of death and suffering in those countries. And we don't see that a lot now. You know, we see certain parts of the world where there are heat waves, and those heat waves do cause deaths. But I think that it will become more of a normal thing, right? It won't be something that's really talked about. It's just another cause of death, just like heart disease and cancer are today. So the next consequence I want to talk about is food insecurity. The UN estimates that due to population growth, the world's going to need to grow nearly twice as much food as we currently grow by 2050. But studies also show that for each degree of warming that we have, there will be at least a 10% decrease in crop yield. And that percentage will increase with each degree of growing as well. 
So if we increase to three degrees of warming over the next 30 years, we're talking about a 30% decrease in crop yield at a time where there's a demand of 100% growth. With that growing population, we've got growing poverty. We've also got a growing wealth gap. So the impoverished are going to increasingly be going without, while the wealthy are going to be able to more easily handle the rises in food prices. And I think we'll start to see a more and more obvious difference between the wealthy and poor, not just in what they have, but in their ability to survive. You know, some people argue that climate change is warming up the places that are currently frozen so that we'll be able to grow crops on them later. And they basically say that that means it equals out and there's no real issue. But in reality, adapting that quickly isn't so easy. While over time, those croplands can be shifted to the north, you know, out of the U.S. into Canada or in Asia, you know, moving up into Siberia, that sort of thing. Fertile soil is not going to be immediately available. It takes the earth hundreds of years to produce soil that is actually fertile. And the land that can't be used any longer is going to be growing at a more rapid pace than the land that we're having available to us to grow on. You know, soil erosion and desertification is also happening rapidly, and we'll discuss that in future episodes, but that will also bring about famines at an increasing rate. It's estimated that at a two and a half degree warming, droughts are going to cause the world to enter a global calorie deficit. Currently, we live in a world that has enough food. We could feed everybody, but we don't because of wealth disparity and poverty. But a global calorie deficit would mean that not only would the food be spread around unevenly like it is now, but there actually wouldn't even be enough to go around, even if we had the willpower to try. At three degrees, there would be annual droughts on every continent, just continuing and exacerbating the problem. So some countries would experience such severe droughts that food could not be produced at all, while others might be experiencing super heavy rainfalls, which is flooding the croplands. We don't know the extent or how difficult exactly it is going to be to grow food, but one thing is certain, and that is that the demand is going to go up, but it's also going to be much more difficult to achieve than it is now. And even for those who are able to get food, a lot of the food that's going to be produced is going to contain less and less amounts of the dietary requirements that are needed in order to stay healthy. So things like zinc, iron, vitamins, they're all going to be less present in our food, causing a slew of other health issues like anemia, pregnancy issues, which can cause birth rates to decline as well. And with kind of how politically unstable the world is now, you can imagine what it would be like if food became substantially more difficult to come by. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is where I think back to the episodes that you did on preparedness. And, you know, we talked about how food and water, those are the first things we need to be prepared with and in a sustainable way. And of the things that you just mentioned, probably the most alarming to me is that calorie deficit that you talked about. It's really sad that right now, 
people go hungry because there is enough food to go around. It just doesn't go around. But to think we could be in a place where there's not even enough food for all the people on the planet, it really makes me want to take advantage of the fact that we have extra now. And if we can preserve that in a way that will help us in the future and also be prepared to you know, grow some of our own food, that alone will help ease some of my anxieties about all this. Yeah, it's interesting. Like starvation, even just hunger is not something that we think about much in the Western world. I've never faced that, right? Like I can in an instant, like get whatever I need to, whether it's out of my fridge or if I really need to, you know, I will drive to the grocery store, drive to the, you know, a restaurant and can easily find something. And, you know, growing up, you didn't eat your veggies and your mom was like, there's a child starving in Africa. And you see videos with like super thin, like little African kids, you know, walking around and you're just like, how is that child even alive? He looks so skin and bones. But I don't think we understand the extent at which that's happening to hundreds of millions of people. And as I sit here and talk about food insecurity, it just seems like something that will never affect us. And seeing those videos of kids in Africa feels so disconnected and so so different. But in reality, we're not that far away from breaks in the supply chain and food just not, simply not being able to be grown from the source and that becoming a reality for many of us. And I say this next part with full understanding and acceptance of how terrible and morbid it is, but the wealthy countries of the world will likely be the last ones to really be afflicted with this. You know, it's not only the wealthy in the U.S. that are going to be able to continue to eat. It's likely that the U.S. will continue to be able to eat for long after poor countries are not. And so that's not to say that we're in the clear or anything like that, but I have to take some time every once in a while and really appreciate and understand where we live and how lucky we are to live here in a lot of ways and nonetheless still be able to see how fragile it is and know that, like you said, we need to be doing things to prepare ourselves and hopefully others for that to come home. I hear you mention those examples of starving children in foreign countries, and it makes me feel ashamed, you know, kind of guilty. Like, we are so spoiled, and we have been, and it's unfair that there are so many people that starve. They have to go without food. And I don't know if you plan to talk on this at all, but I think when it comes to the results of climate change, there are going to be a lot of ethical dilemmas. I mean, we see the response right now of individuals and nations to all the tragedies that are happening worldwide. And sometimes there's an effort to reach out and help. Other times there's no such effort and we just ignore what's going on elsewhere. Other times we do actions that make it even worse. And I can only imagine as this kind of thing increases worldwide, how many different approaches and opinions there will be and just how extreme the controversy and the political turmoil as each nation is dealing with not only their own issues, but also arguing about what their place is in helping or not helping with the issues going on elsewhere. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. I mean, of all the issues that we're talking about, I don't think that the most death is going to come from hunger. I don't think the most death is going to come from excessive heat or the couple other things we're going to mention here. It's going to come from people and countries fighting about what to do about it. And at the end of this episode, we'll kind of touch back on this. And I'm hoping that you and I could just have a kind of discussion on, on what that might look like. But yeah, for sure, 100%, I think that's the number one danger that we'll be facing as we head into this. So I just want to touch really quickly on natural disasters. To me, this is going to be kind of the most interesting thing, the thing I'm most curious about in the next 30 or 40 years. You know, we're already seeing natural disasters intensify. When you consider the 2020 hurricane season and wildfire season, like it's just insane. And yet people have already kind of just brushed aside. Unless you're 
really looking for it and paying attention to it. The fire season, the hurricane season of 2020 is in the past. Everyone's still talking about COVID. But in reality, I mean, 2020 was the fifth consecutive above average hurricane season for the Atlantic. So meaning that since 2015 through 2020, every year was above average. And 2020 was the most active hurricane season on record. Likewise, the 2020 North American fire season was the most active on record. And it should be obvious at this point that it's just going to keep getting worse. And yet we still have people who are saying things like, and by people, I mean the president of the United States and others who are saying things like, well, California just needs to clear their brush. It's just because California is not clearing their brush. There's no climate crisis. It's just clean up your twigs and there won't be such massive wildfires. You know, as the jets... As the jet stream slows down, storms are going to have more time to build up. And when they do land, they're going to more often look like Hurricane Harvey, if you remember from Houston in 2017, where it just sat there for like days and dumped tons of water. We're used to hurricanes that come on land. They push through an area in an hour and dissipate over land. But a slowing jet stream will mean that they will stagnate much longer and cause much more damage and flooding. Hail is estimated to grow up to four times the average size in hailstorms, and those hailstorms will become much more frequent, which is going to cause more damage to infrastructure, things like cars, buildings, roofs, damage more crops, and likely causing injury to humans. Tornadoes are supposed to grow in strength and frequency. Uh, If you remember the derecho storm in Iowa this year that damaged a ton of crops, it's basically like a hurricane on land that just pushed through, knocked silos over, You know, those types of things are going to happen more and more often and with more and more intensity. Going back to the wildfires in North America, there was 9 million acres that were burned this year, over 52,000 wildfires. In California alone, there was nearly 11,000 buildings that burned. And to me, it's just crazy. How much more obvious can it get? And at the rate that it's increasing, like, I'm just so curious what is this going to look like in 2030 and 2040? If we keep having record record years every year or every other year, what does a 2050 record year look like for hurricanes? Some studies say that we'll have 16 times the amount of fires in the U.S. by the end of the century. So you picture the types of fires that we're already having, and they're saying that they could be up to 15 or 16 times worse. And so while we don't know exactly how crazy it's going to be, we can say that insurance companies, along with government budgets, are going to have to make room for it. Among the most expensive natural disasters of last year, 2020, were the hurricane season in the U.S. and Central America, which cost $40 billion, flooding in China that was $32 billion, wildfires in the U.S. at $20 billion, and the cyclones in Bangladesh and India at $13 billion. So just from those four items, we're talking about over $100 billion in damage. When you add in the other problems like COVID and the economic crisis, how can nations possibly stay solvent as these types of catastrophes continue to increase? How can our infrastructure be maintained when we're supposed to be covering all these other costs as well? To me, this is where the catabolic collapse of it really kicks in. And I don't see how we can possibly pay for everything that's going to need to be paid for as all of our issues continue to expand. And I think sometimes we forget just how long-lasting the consequences of some of these natural disasters are. A few years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to the Caribbean, which we had never done before. And we were there on vacation for a few days, you know, all excited to go spend some time on a white sand beach. But just driving to the beach... We went past neighborhood after neighborhood of buildings that were totally torn apart from a major hurricane that had happened, I think, a year or two before that. 
And if these major storms and hurricanes and other natural disasters are just going to increase, if the frequency is going to go up and up, I don't see how, even if we had all the capital to make the repairs, how we could possibly stay on top of all that. Yeah, I think at some point it gets to the point where it becomes unsustainable and you can't fix the damage of a Category 5 hurricane in the same spot every year or every other year for several years in a row. Insurance companies will eventually say, we're not insuring this area anymore, or they will insure it, but the rates will be above what can be afforded. And so there's going to be, I think, a humongous shift in how insurance works and especially in where it works. You know, we're, we're about to touch on sea level rise. And, you know, at what point do insurance companies stop insuring properties in Miami? Like they know the risk. And yet for the meantime, they know they're still making money. At what point do actuaries run all the numbers and say, this is not profitable? At what point do mortgage companies stop saying, yeah, we'll give you a 30-year mortgage in a beachfront property in Miami because they realize that in 30 years, it's going to be underwater. And if they were smart, from all the studies I've read, in 30 years, Miami is going to be underwater. And so I think it won't be long before we start to see these types of shifts take place and we'll get our first taste of what that industry is going to do. Before you move on, when it comes to natural disasters, I feel like this is the part of these collapse conversations where it can easily dive into the whole romanticized idea of collapse, right? People think about an increase of natural disasters, and I think in some ways it sounds kind of exciting, like it's this epic period of time where all these crazy things are taking place and earthquakes are happening and volcanoes are erupting and hurricanes are off the charts. And that all sounds really adventurous if it's just for a short period of time. But when you think about all the damage and the prolonged effects of it and getting hit over and over again and the financial hardship on individuals, and like you said, you're not insured or the insurance company goes under and so you've now lost your home and you're trying to figure out what to do. When you really think about what this looks like, it's not so grand and exciting. Yeah, if year after year you're going from tornado season to wildfire season and hurricane season into blizzard season and just in time to start it back all over again and you know you're barely recuperated from the last disaster before the next one starts like it's going to be life-changing and life-ending for a lot of people and while we don't know how long we have until we get to that point like we're already at a place where the disasters are all happening every year and we are moving from one season into the next it's just not always affecting the same people And so people are getting breaks in between while they get to watch other people suffer. But it certainly, like you said, won't be romantic or exciting or fun when we're all just experiencing the same crap over and over again. Okay, on to a couple more quick ones. So on the topic of sea level rise, this is one of the most often talked about consequences of global warming. And I think it's often one of the most misunderstood as well. You know, people talk about these like apocalyptic events of the West Antarctic ice sheet's going to collapse and cause 200 feet of sea level rise instantaneously, or Greenland's going to melt in one summer, and, you know, those types of things, which, you know, the, the Antarctic ice sheet collapsing is possible, but it's a hypothetical, and it's not what we really deal with on this podcast. But what is certain is that between 2050 and 2100, sea level is going to rise somewhere between one and a half and five feet. That's something like half a meter to two meters, roughly. 
And that's enough to cause the displacement of between 300 and 700 million people. We're talking about entire cities and economies gone down the drain and with impacts reaching you know, much further than just the coastlines. When you consider all the port cities and towns that would be lost, the cost of moving those ports inland so that trade can be continued, the cost of moving that many people and figuring out where to put them, there's just so much to that. We're not going to go into a lot of sea level rise right now because it's going to have its own episode later. But even just a foot and a half to five feet of sea level rise has the capability of collapsing our entire planetary system of trade and economics that we currently utilize. But that leads me into the last bit I want to talk about that we've already briefly touched on. And it is, to me, just the most terrifying consequence of all of this. And that is that every consequence that we have talked about has the potential to cause the need for mass migration. In episode 8, we talked briefly about how between 1 and 3 billion people are projected to be displaced at one point during this century in the span of a single lifetime. And seeing how the relatively teeny tiny migrations that have had to take place due to wars in places like Syria, and just how terribly those have been handled and the impacts that those have had, it just absolutely terrifies me. We talked earlier about the political implications of the decisions that will have to be made around food and heat and all these things. But one thing that I simply cannot fathom is the political decisions around how to handle not millions, not hundreds of millions, but billions of people being displaced is just horrifying to me. Yeah, you brought up Syria and the Syrian refugee crisis. And that's something I actually looked into this week. I knew that we were going to be discussing some of the side effects of climate change. And when you mentioned that there's a potential for billions of people being displaced, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis was and is huge, but that's a matter of something like 5.6 million, at least that had to flee Syria, another like 6 million that are displaced within Syria. And as a side comment, not related to climate change, I'll just say that as I looked into it, you know, I never paid a whole lot of attention to the Arab Spring uprising when it took place. But seeing Syria as a very developed country and seeing that the government used too much force, you know, they did some awful things to a group of 13 year olds that painted some anti-government graffiti on a wall or a billboard, all these peaceful protests. And then the government started cracking down harder and harder and shooting in the crowds. And it gave way to this huge civil war and all these different groups got involved. It wasn't just people against the government, but now there were religious groups and there were jihadists and Islamists. And, you know, I get mixed up with how many groups all got their hands in it and started fighting, you know, and now Syria is just a total mess. And Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan and all these other countries in that region have been in large part destabilized because of the Syrian refugee crisis. Like watching all of that and seeing how it all played out was honestly chilling to me because it resonated a lot with what we've seen this past year. All the peaceful protests with increasingly severe government crackdown, you know, people against the police, riots and tear gas unidentified cops pulling people into vans, taking them to unknown locations. Yeah, exactly. It made me realize just what a dangerous path we're on aside from climate change. But when you talk about climate change and the potential for billions of people to be displaced and mass migrations, you know, sometimes we just think about how hard it is for the people that have to gather up their stuff and move from one place to another. But it was eye-opening for me to see just how many other implications there are. 
right? A lack of housing. And in the case of the Syrian refugee crisis, there's not enough places to live to go around. And because of the increased demand, it also raised rent for everybody else. And so all of a sudden, it's unaffordable to live anywhere unless you're at least somewhat wealthy jobs. There's just not enough jobs to go around. That's a whole lot of mouths to feed. There's not enough food. Who's going to provide the food? Um, Education. You know, they say something with the Syrian refugee crisis, they estimated half of all refugees are children. And some of these other governments of the countries that the refugees were fleeing to were saying, you know, if we don't get these kids educated, they fall right into these terrorist groups, which just accentuates the problems. Racism is huge. When you've got people fleeing from one country to another, it inconveniences a lot of people. They start to develop animosity and even hatred toward these newcomers that are taking the jobs or that are causing their rent to go up. You know, there's the language barrier that takes place in most cases when somebody has to flee from one country to another, which causes an entire other slew of issues. You know, and I feel like that's just the start of it. Those issues alone, from what we're talking about, you know, five to six million people in the Syrian refugee crisis situation has cost billions and is destabilizing governments. And if we think it could be billions of people on these mass migrations, there's no way our way of living can even remain remotely close to what it is now. There's no way governments can continue to function or can keep a handle on all that. You know, with the example of Syria, the United States provided a lot of aid, and other countries provided a lot of aid. And that still barely scratched the surface. That wasn't nearly enough. And it's going to be a decade or two decades before things really settle down. But if you've got climate change happening on a global scale, there's not going to be another country there to even help try and bail you out. When you say that the way governments decide to handle these sort of issues and all of the infighting, you know, and the political turmoil and the diplomatic issues, the international turmoil, when you say that that is what scares you the most, just based on the limited research that I did, that's what scares me the most as well. I feel like I can do some things to be prepared for some food and water shortages, you know, and some of the other issues that we've talked about. But I don't feel like there's anything I can do to prepare for all of the implications of mass migration. I think it's truly unimaginable, the scope of the problem. And, you know, it's not going to be a billion people all at once. It's not going to be three billion people all at once. You know, we talk about the time scale over which this is going to happen. And that almost makes it worse because, you know, let's say one of the first mass migrations I see happening is going to be Bangladesh, which is going to, in the not so distant future, have persistent flooding that's going to displace tens of millions of people. If you've got 30 million people that all of a sudden have to up and leave Bangladesh, they're going to go to their not-so-friendly neighbors. And as the world watches that happen, 30 million people were already talking about something five to six times as bad as the Syrian crisis. And as the world watches that unfold and watches the impact that that's going to have on those neighboring countries and on the region as a whole, and as India has its freshwater crisis, it's looming in the coming decades, it's going to make the next countries less likely to want to take them. And yeah, when I think about of those five to six million from the Syrian refugee crisis, I think it was only one million that even ended up in the Western world. I think four or five million of them stayed in Arab countries. And to think of all the populism and all the nationalism and all the uproar that came from those one million refugees, I just don't see any possible way that the Western world doesn't devolve into more and more populism and, frankly, fascism. 
Because as people become more xenophobic, and we've already got a ton of that, right? Just imagine what it will be like when there's not only these sort of false, overly exaggerated claims of Hispanics coming to take our jobs, but literally numbers in the tens or hundreds of millions of people <laughs> that need a place to live that will overrun a system, that will make it un- unsustainable. I think nationalism will continue to a point that is just unbearable. And so the types of things that I see, and I know this starts to get sound dramatic and things, but like, what do the borders look like when that happens? How do countries react when people are showing up by the tens or hundreds of thousands trying to get in? I think of things like refugee camps, right? I think of things like border skirmishes and even getting into really nasty things like genocides. Those are all things that I I see as being unavoidable as that problem gets worse and worse. If we can't even agree with our neighbor countries during times of peace, when there's relatively low conflict, how can we maintain peace in a time when there's so much suffering and need and despair? So anyway, that's kind of a depressing topic to end on. But I think it's important to be realistic about what the future holds. Like you said, Kellen, not over-romanticize things because this is not going to be fun. Climate change isn't just going to be some cool weather events. You know, it's going to cause a real uproar. And again, when you refer back to the first several episodes of the podcast where we kind of laid out the foundation of what causes collapse, all these things that we've just discussed, I mean, each one of them has the potential to cause our global civilization system to collapse all on its own. We haven't mentioned everything. There are things that we haven't talked about, like air quality, the dying oceans. We haven't talked much about potential for actual wars, nuclear weapons, that sort of thing. And one of the main things that we didn't talk about was freshwater shortages. And the reason for that is that we actually are going to be doing an interview with someone in the next couple of weeks on this exact topic. He's an expert in water availability and especially on the future potential for water conflicts between nations. But I'm really excited for that topic. As always, thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. Feel free to reach out with any comments. We've been getting some great feedback, both positive and negative. It's always really appreciated to know what things you're enjoying, what things you wish that we would do or didn't do. You can reach us at CollapsePod on Twitter or at BreakingDownCollapse at gmail.com. I'm user Corey John on Reddit, K-O-R-Y-J-O-N, and Kellen won't respond to messages on Reddit, so don't even try. Hey man, Reddit's a whole world I'm just barely getting into. <laughs> We'll get you there. We'll have you post something soon. By the way, I think I heard mention of your Reddit username the other day, and I think you need to just introduce it to the world probably right now. No, now's not the time. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep listeners in suspense, but I will say it rivals Fist of Midgets. I think it outdoes Fist of Midgets substantially. Until next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.